Welcome to the Regents Church Podcast. This message was recorded live at one of our Sunday morning or Wednesday evening gatherings. We hope you're challenged and encouraged by this message. Well, we thank God that we're here today. That he's given us a privilege to be here and we bless his name. You know, one of the things that I'd like to, as we talk about these things out of God's Word, I think part of the great challenge that we might have sometimes is really coming to terms with the fact that God is there and that He is the one that has spoken. See, because once you believe that God is the one who has spoken in the Scriptures, once you believe that God is whom He says He is and He is the one who has spoken, you have no problem accepting some of the things that, you know, the things that are written in the Scriptures. Even if they sound so, you know, too good to be real, as I like to say, or they sound bogus and you think, that can't be true, right? But the point is, do you believe that God is the one speaking in the Scriptures? Do you believe that God actually exists and that He sent Jesus Christ to die for us? Because if someone, I, I always have a problem with anybody that doesn't believe in the existence of God. That makes life, just how do I communicate with you? I'm trying to say something really deep, something really profound about God. And it's so difficult for them to understand that. And that's why the Bible says clearly that anyone that comes to God must do what? Must first of all believe that He is that's number one. Amen. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If we don't believe that he is, it's a problem to believe anything that we tell you he says. Thank you. Right? That's the point. So here in the book of Romans, you know, we've been looking at the book of Romans for some time now. And it seems like it's repeating a lot of the doctrines. But the book of Romans is really, that's the book that if you get it, if you get the book of Romans, you've got the hallmark of Christianity. You've got the hallmark of our new life in Christ. You understand what we used to be in the past and what we are now. It's in the Romans that all of that is really summed up. Because after the book of Romans, you're going to read some of the themes in all the other uh, books that Paul wrote. And by the way, all the other uh, epistles of the Bible. And by the way, it's also a summary of what happened even before the New Testament. So that's the book of Romans. Now last week, we came spoke and we looked at chapter 7. We finished up chapter 7 and the major word that we saw in chapter 7 was what? Who, who can describe for me after chapter 7 this is what you came out with? One word, just a word. Anyone? Identity, very good. Anyone from chapter 7? Remember what Paul was going through? There are some words that come up. Identity is one of them, but what was happening to that identity? Anyone? Crisis. There was crisis. That's a crisis of identity. Right? Because really what I want to do is not what I do. I know that I am spiritual. I know that Jesus Christ has saved me. I know that I'm supposed to be good, but I have a hard time living up to the standard that I know. So we come up with not only identity, and crisis, we really come up with a phrase, a crisis of identity. Because what happens is that we began to, people, you know, Paul is illustrating for us how easy it is for us to begin to define ourselves by what we do rather than by who we are. 
Identity is a matter of who you are. It's a matter of your DNA. It's a matter of who your daddy is. You look at me closely, you've probably seen my daddy. That's just how it is. Amen. And you look at the two of us, you know there's something, you know, something happened there. <laughs> okay, somebody was responsible for that. Mm -hmm. That's what identity is. It's a matter of who is your daddy. Right? If you look at my cousin, you go way back and you know somebody was doing something in that one. Right? And that's how come three of us and others can come up with, oh, I kind of hear your voice in your brother's voice. I kind of see you in your brother. I kind of see that. That's how it's supposed to be among us believers. That after some time, it's like, oh, Debbie kind of acts like Patrick, and Patrick kind of acts like uh, uh, like Robert, we, we kinda, you guys are kind of the same in some ways because guess what? We come from the same daddy. Amen. And I also heard that if you get married for a long time, after some time, your wife begins to act like you. Sometimes when she talks, it sounds just like you. That's what I heard. You know, sometimes she finishes my sentences and I can finish her sentence too. But that's about identity. It's about where do you come from? Who is your daddy? Who is responsible? What is responsible for who you are? Guess what? And I want us to get this. Just because you do one thing and do it and do it and do it doesn't really mean that's who you are. We all need to get that. Because sometimes you can act contrary to your identity. You can act contrary to who you are. Your behavior does not define you in that case. It is who you are that defines you, that it should be responsible for the way you act, right? So don't get fooled by the fact, oh, because I lied yesterday, I'm a liar. No, you just lie. doesn't make you a liar. Because a liar becomes your identity, right? So, so in the book of Romans, we faced it, we looked at the crisis of identity and behavior. What I want to do is what, not what I'm doing. I'm not living up to the standard that I know that I should live up to. Okay, I know the good thing that I need to do, but I'm not able to do it, so I'm in trouble. Right? It is frustrating when you don't live up to who you, you are and what you're able to do. And the point that we get from that passage is that being good is not a guarantee that you're going to live right. Okay? That's just how it is. The fact that you are good doesn't mean you're always going to do the right thing. You know, we all have kids, and we know that at times we look at those kids and we say, where did you come from? Amen. Who is your daddy? They're still our kids. But guess what? They just didn't behave right. They did not live up to the standard. And therefore, it causes people to question. Here's what Paul says about that in the book of Romans is chapter 7. 18 to 19. He says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, ouch, in my flesh, that is, for I have the desire to do what is right. This is how he expresses his crisis. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Desire and ability, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that happen to all of us? We find ourselves doing what we don't want to do. I really didn't want to yell at somebody, but I yelled at them. I really didn't want to say that, but I said it. 
I didn't really want to do it, but it just came out of my mouth. <laughs> you know, that's just how we are, right? Yeah. You tell a little kid, that's how you know we're bad sometimes. Yeah. You tell a little kid, hey, don't ever stick anything in that thing. Okay. Don't ever put anything in that Guess what he wants to do? As soon as you leave, he wants to go stick something in there. Mm -hmm. Nate is laughing because he understands what I'm saying. That's what kids do. That's what we do as people. Amen. Right? We know we're not supposed to run the red light, but sometimes there's no car for us. There's no camera. That's what we do. Humans. Right? So, so we know the right thing to do, but sometimes we don't do it. And it can become a struggle. And that's what Paul is going through here. And because, you know, let's say, you know, when you want, you want to get somebody to do something, they want to know, first of all, can I do what you're asking me to do? First of all, this task that you're giving me to do, can it be done at all by anybody? Okay, maybe people can do it, but can I do it? Right? And the last question will be, well, if I do it, am I going to get the right results? Amen. Right? So here, Paul is trying, he's trying to do the right thing, but each time he fails. He's trying to do the right thing, he fails. He's trying and trying and trying, but he's failing. That leads to this crisis. That leads to the great frustration that we all feel. If we take this thing seriously, if we take righteousness seriously, if we take God's mandate seriously, we are bound to feel the frustration that we cannot live up to what we know is right. We're not doing all the things we know we're supposed to do. It leads to frustration, right? So Paul goes through this frustration, the inability to live up to the standard that he knows. And in fact, it's not just frustration, it leads to a point where he says, I'm helpless, man. I don't know what to do. I want to do the right thing, but I can't do it. I don't know if anyone has been there. I know I've been there. There are times you just want to do the right thing, but man, <clears throat> right? So it leads to this helplessness, almost hopelessness in Paul, as it does in each of us. It leads, it leads to this, this place of, there is nothing that I can do. I don't have the power to do what I believe, what I know that I should be doing. And this is good. Guess what? That's what the law was meant for. The law was meant to drive us to that place where we know, I can't do it. Amen. I can't. I tried. That's what God was trying to say. You can't. Right? So it leads to this place of frustration, of helplessness, of powerlessness. And Paul, here's how Paul articulates this towards the end of that chapter. He says, look, wretched man that I am. Because for him, this frustration, this inability to do what you know is right, Paul says it's death. <coughs> right? Of course, for you to feel this deeply means that you actually take this stuff seriously. If pleasing God is important to you, you're going to feel this sense of frustration here because you know what? When you're going through that, you will. And Paul really wanted to please God, and he felt helpless at this point. But, so as I said before, you know, God's law was supposed to drive us to this place of frustration. It was supposed to show that none of us could please God 
as fallen people, as fallen creatures, none of us can please God in our own way. We can't. We better stop struggling. We cannot please God because God's standards are perfect. And our standards are whatever. Right? And we cannot satisfy God that way. So we've fallen, we're separated from Him, and even after we have become believers, we still know that if we want to do this thing by ourselves, we cannot do it. We don't have the personal capacity to please God. Even our best desires, we cannot because of the presence of the sinful nature in us. And we're going to talk more about that. Because of the devil who is always around telling us, well, I told you one going to work. Thank you. Why don't you do this? Everybody's doing this, why don't you do that? Because of the presence of the devil all around, because of the sinful nature that is still in us, because of the presence of the world all around us, suggesting to us the things we need to do or not to do, it is difficult, in fact, impossible for any of us to live the Christian life on our own. Amen. And Paul felt that. He felt it. He came to this crisis. But, here's the point though, if Paul has stopped there, it would be totally hopeless. There had to be a resolution, there had to be the great resolution that's coming. This great resolution that's saying, look, the only way we can do this is to find our victory in Jesus Christ. Our victory is in Jesus Christ and that is a great resolution. Paul, after all this frustration and everything got to the point, he says, Forget it. I can't do it. I'm going to have to look somewhere else. And he found the answer. Isn't that interesting that sometimes we must get to the limits, to the end of our efforts. We get to the end of our tether. We get to the, our wit's end and there's nothing more that we can do. And we have to turn to God because he's the one that has the answer. Paul, after struggling with his identity crisis, struggling with his inability to do what he needed to do, he came to this point, he says, oh wow, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because that's the only way out. So it doesn't really matter whether you are a believer or you, are, you don't quite believe yet, you haven't crossed the line. Hey, you can't do this stuff. You cannot please God by yourself. The only way to do it is to go to Jesus Christ. And so when we come to this point where he says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, now he realizes the way out. He realizes that, look, yeah, I can't serve the law as it was before. I will serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, this body right here, I'm not going to serve God. It can't do it. The flesh only serves sin, the law of sin. Right? Now here's the problem. If you serve God half of the time, and you still have the obligation to serve the law, you're still in trouble. Because for the law, you've got to meet it 100%. Mm -hmm. It has to be 100%. And if you fail at one, you fail at all. And that means something's still got to be chopped off. No, I'm just kidding. You know, <laughs> your head or your arm or whatever still needs to be chopped off. You're supposed to die as a result of sin. 
So you can't be doing both at the same time. God has to come to the rescue. He has to come to the rescue, and he did. And I call this the great transition or the great resolution. It's a transition. That last verse right there is a transition to the big thing that we're going to meet in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is where if you get chapter 8 of Romans, you're good. If you get that, you're great. Because you know what? Frustration, frustration, inability, crisis, and everything. Wretched man that I am. Thanks for Jesus Christ. But he's going to tell us more. Now that you are serving the law of God through Jesus Christ, now that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law on your behalf, now that Jesus Christ has saved you, guess what? We go into chapter 8, victorious. See, this is an appropriate segue to chapter 8. See, the, the point here is that you may still be attacked by the flesh because your flesh is prone to disobedience. It's there, right? And you're being attacked by the law, and the law is impossible to fulfill. But guess what? Chapter 8 says you are no longer held in bondage to the flesh or to the law. That's what he's saying. You are no longer in bondage to the flesh or to the law. Even though the flesh is there, even though it's still directing you to do stuff that you don't want to do, you are no longer held in bondage to that. And by the way, you are no longer held in condemnation because of that. And that's what chapter 8 tells us. Jesus Christ will be that. But you're no longer held in bondage to the flesh and the law because of Jesus Christ and the new reality into which he has ushered you. Jesus Christ has ushered each of us into a new reality. It is no longer the reality of the past, and I hope that Christians will get used to this idea. The reality you live in as a child of God is no longer the reality you had before. You're still the same person, Still the same excited person, still the same lively person you are. I'm looking at somebody. You're still the same orderly, well-organized person you are, pay attention to detail kind of thing, right? Well, guess what? As a child of God, you live in a different reality. Amen. It is no longer the reality that is controlled and predetermined by the flesh and the law. It is a reality that is controlled and predetermined by something else, another kind of law. Same person, Patrick. Same person, Robert. But a new creature in Christ. Amen. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. Here's what he says. In verse 1, chapter 8, he says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Great passage right there. Everybody should memorize that. Let's go ahead and say it. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You gotta say it again. Okay. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You gotta say it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. Anytime, like I say all the time, anytime you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Right? There is therefore, what is it therefore? Why does he use the word therefore? 
You gotta go back to chapter seven. Last verse, what did he say? Remember, he says in chapter seven, last verse, let me read that. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus has done this. On the basis of the work that Jesus has done, there is no condemnation for those who are in him. Amen. See, if you are outside of him, you have cause to be afraid. But if you are in him, you don't face any condemnation anymore. The only condemnation you face is the one you put on yourself, or the one that other people put on you, Amen. and you believe them. That is the only condemnation, at least the sense of condemnation you have. Just because you did something bad yesterday doesn't mean you are condemned. You are a child of God if you are in Christ. There is therefore now, present tense, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Does it say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who didn't use a bad word yesterday? Is that what he said? No. Does it say there is therefore no condemnation to those who came to church today? That's not what he's saying. It is for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how do you get into Christ Jesus? If you, should, if you shall confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's it. That's all it takes to be in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, it says there is no condemnation for you. You can't let anything else define your life. You can't let anyone or anything make you what you are not and tell you what you are not. Your definition today, your self-definition, your social definition, every definition of your emotion or whatever is based on Jesus Christ. All the old junk has passed away. Everything has become new in Christ. Amen. So you look at uh, the letters of Paul, whether it's in Romans, you're going to see the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. The question is, are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, guess what? You're covered. Amen. Right? If you are in Christ, you are covered. So don't, don't, don't bow to man-made condemnation. Don't bow to any self-imposed or devil-motivated condemnation. Because you know what? You don't need to feel any of that because God has freed you from it. God says you are free from any condemnation at all. There is none. Not on the basis of what you've done or will do or could do. It is based on what Jesus Christ has done. And therefore your problem, my problem, is to latch onto what Jesus has done and get a hold of it and stand there. Because that's what makes the difference. Don't get condemned because of what you did yesterday or two days ago or three days ago or one month ago. Don't feel condemned. Don't live in condemnation because if God doesn't condemn you, who is anybody to condemn you? You know, sometimes I think really our biggest problem is a lack of knowledge that leads to this inability to forgive ourselves. You don't know what God has done for you. So when something happens, oh man, I just blew it. I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I did it again. Blah, blah, blah. You remember all this stuff. You know, basically what you're saying is that you're a better, better brain than God. 
Because God says what? Your sins I will remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I carried away your iniquities. God says, I don't remember them anymore, but somehow your brain tells you, oh man, I did that 365 days ago. I said that one bad word. I did that. God doesn't remember. And you remember? Wow. Help yourself. Forgive yourself. Amen. Enjoy the freedom that God has given to you. Instead of living in this condemnation, that only causes you to not be effective. That's all it does. It makes you ineffective as a child of God. God wants you to live in freedom. Be free because if the Lord has set you free, guess what? You are free. You are free indeed. That's what he says. Yes, we have the tendency to, to define ourselves, to allow other people to define us and be influenced by them. But you know what? The only thing that is supposed to be defining us today is the Word of God. And when God says it, your job is to believe it, my job is to believe it and run with it. No one has the right or power to condemn you. And you should be confident enough not to accept that from anyone. Amen. If you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you have cause to worry. Right? See, we're still going on here. Under the old covenant, that is the law. Okay, under the old covenant, the Jews were expected to fulfill all the laws. If you were guilty of one, you were guilty of all. Okay? And people had a reason to be afraid at the time because you know what? You could do nine, nine and a half. Oops, you just missed it. If you missed the last one, if you missed the last one, you just got a zero from the wrong. <laughs> okay? Ten out of ten, you're doing well. Right? 
eternal death, separation from God. But under the new law of the Spirit, though, we don't have any penalties. We have no, none of that. What we have is a gift. Okay? Under the old law, the wages you earn them is death. Under the new law, we have no penalty, we have no wages either. We are not paid for righteousness because it's been paid for. What we have is a gift. What we have is grace. Grace, the gift of life that is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus poured out his blood, it was your blood that was poured out. It was as if you were right there when he was crucified. Amen. And under the law of the spirit of life, Jesus has already fulfilled all the legal requirements. Please stop feeling guilty about stuff. Don't let guilt weigh you down and make you unusable by God. Don't let that happen to you. Live in the newness of life. Live in the freedom that God has given to all of us. And by the way, nobody has a corner on this and is available for all to all of us. <clears throat> and as I like to say, we are really all the same. God doesn't have any grandkids. Amen. See a little girl here? She has as much right in the presence of God as any of us adults. She probably has more because she has a lot of life to live. <laughs> right? So Christ has fulfilled all that. All we need to do is to continue to live, okay, live in the freedom. Live under the blood of Jesus for as long as we're in Christ, we are covered. We deliberately submit ourselves to the love of Jesus Christ, to the blood of Jesus Christ, because under that, we are covered. Under that, we have righteousness. Under that, we have been accepted by God for every moment of our lives, and there is no minute, no moment, no second that you are condemned. You gotta get this. Today, I don't know how many seconds we have to do, maybe uh, uh, Daniel and the third can do the math. 24 hours a day times 60, that'll give us the number of minutes. For every minute of today, for every second of today, you face no condemnation. No. What you have is what? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which has set you free. That's what it is. So don't go, don't go condemning yourself. Right? You accept it. Don't try to make God to accept you because he already does. The law we operate in now is the perfect law, James describes for us, is the perfect law that grants liberty. See, the law in general is supposed to limit your freedom. The law is supposed to get you in trouble so you can pay more taxes or whatever. You know, but the law that we operate in Christ is a law that grants you liberty. It is the law of freedom. That's what it is. Okay, so let's try to enjoy that. You know, under the old law, it was impossible it was impossible for the law to save anyone. He couldn't save anybody at all. Under that law, you had to bring sacrifices every time to appease God for every failure. Under the new law, the law of liberty, guess what? Jesus has secured salvation. He has secured divine approval for you. He has secured for you grace and favor. And you don't have to work for any of those. Because the sacrifice Jesus offered was once and for all. Jesus, you know, through Jesus Christ, 
through Jesus Christ, God has accomplished for us something that the law could not do. Yes, the law could not save anybody at all. You can keep all Ten Commandments. You can keep all of them. In fact, the other 660-something that the Pharisees wrote down that you're still not going to be saved. Amen. But isn't that interesting, though? I mean, seriously, we are believers, and we know how difficult it is to live according to God's law, but somehow we would like non-believers to obey God's law. Somehow we want them to obey the Ten Commandments. They've got to do Ten Commandments, man. You've got to put that in all courthouses and ever. I know it's a matter of tradition. But somehow we know how difficult it is to do this stuff. Even now that we have Jesus Christ in us, even with the Holy Spirit in us, we know how difficult it is to do. But somehow we hold unbelievers to the standard that we ourselves can't even keep. That's not We know the truth that it doesn't work like Apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit of God that is not, we can't do it. What we owe the world is not to get them to conform, to live according to the standards. What we owe them is to tell them, you know what, hey, I know, I know you can't do it. I couldn't do it either. But in Christ, you can do it. If you believe in Jesus Christ like I do, you can live that life. That's our message to the world. Our message to the world is not to try to get them to be righteous by their own standards. No, our message is in Jesus Christ, the righteous requirements, the legal requirements of God have been fulfilled. You don't need to struggle anymore. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, period. Because we are his children, not because of any good thing we've done, but because of his grace. Right? It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The flesh couldn't do it. So God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Yeah. The law couldn't do it. We could not fulfill that. God sent Jesus Christ to fulfill the law on our behalf. So if we believe in Jesus, we just fulfill the law. If we accept Jesus, we have just, you know, fulfilled the law. Because God sees us through the picture, through the lens of Jesus Christ. So all of that sin has been judged, has been taken care of, and we are supposed to now live according to God's standards. Everybody is saying, woohoo, this is great. We're free. We don't need to do anything anymore, right? Amen. Because guess what? If you say that my identity is to not steal, okay? If I say, I have an identity, I am going to steal. I don't steal because it's not in my DNA. But each time I pass by something, the owner starts looking for it. You know what I'm saying, right? Each time I cross by, they start losing something. Something is missing. Each time I come into the room, something is missing. But I said, my identity is I don't steal. I'm honest. I am to be trusted. But somehow, anytime you come around, people have to protect us all. That is a problem in that community. You are not living up to that identity. That is a problem. So basically, we 
we've got to find a way to live up to that identity that we have. You know, God expects us to live according to the Spirit. That's his expectation. That is to say, we are supposed to be living according to his standards. Why? Because we are being empowered by God from the inside. We are being empowered by the Spirit of God from the inside. Therefore, God expects us to live up to that standard, not in our power, but in the power that he has given to us. That is his expectation. We can't go around and keep saying, oh, well, I'm a child of God. Now I can do whatever. No. You're basically saying, mm, this my identity is questionable if you're not living up to Right? So although we have the flesh, though, we are supposed to allow the spirit to dominate our flesh. Our spirit is supposed to dominate, put the flesh in subjection so we can practically demonstrate the righteousness of God. That's what we're supposed to do, and that is what we can do. We can do that. We have the power to live, live out the righteousness of God because we have the Spirit of God in us. And that Spirit, if we give Him a chance, will manifest the character of God in us. The question is, are we going to do that? And the Bible tells us clearly that living according to the flesh, whether you believe in Jesus Christ or, or not, living according to the flesh, the Bible says, is miserable, is death. Amen. You see a Christian who is not living um, the way he's supposed to live, he's a misery. He's not happy. He's not happy. And if we do that, we're not going to be happy either. Not because anyone put a curse on us, because we're living contrary to our nature, and it makes us miserable. Okay? So living according to that, you know, living that life that's controlled by the flesh makes us miserable. And basically, um, missing out on the life and the peace that God has given to us. We're supposed to be enjoying the life and the peace that God gives. So if we live according to the flesh, not good, we're miserable. Okay? Because we know that the flesh is very antagonistic to God, toward God, and to live according to the, God, the flesh is basically to say, we don't like you, Lord. That's really what we're saying. Because the flesh is antagonistic. If we didn't have the ability to live by the Spirit. God would not expect us to do that. But He has given us His Spirit so we can live the life that He expects us to live. So we need to know that. The Spirit, though, leads us through the process of change because the Spirit of God has come into us. He leads us through this process of change. And let me say this. We all need to get it. When we got born again, God did not remove the bad boy. He didn't remove the sinful nature. He's still there. What God did was to introduce himself into our lives. He placed his spirit in our lives to represent him, to empower us from the inside so that we can dominate the flesh. Right? That's the truth. That's why we can still, you find a Christian, he says something that a non-believer would say. He does something that a non-believer would say. Uh, maybe you don't talk about the ones we can see. Maybe he's proud as if a non-believer can be proud. Nobody sees that. Mm -hmm. And we think, we're perfect. But on the inside, we may be messing up. Okay? So, the Spirit, though, when he comes in, 
is supposed to lead us through this process of change. The Spirit is supposed to lead us through refinement. The Spirit helps us to draw closer to God. As we stay in the Word of God, as we stay in prayer, He brings us closer and closer to God and begins to refine our lives so we find that we are able to live longer in the Spirit than we live in the flesh. As we mature in Christ, we find that we can go much longer times without doing those negative things that we used to do in the past. I think in the early days of our lives as Christians, we may find ourselves more prone to doing those things that we did in the past. But as we give more space, more opportunity to the Holy Spirit, He transforms us, He changes us, and leads us in the way we're supposed to go. So we need to understand that yes, our spirit is born again, but the flesh is not born again. It's still prone to all the negative stuff. However, the Spirit of God in us helps us to dominate, to say no to the flesh, to say no to the world, to say no to the devil, as much as he likes to dominate us. But, and that's what, what it's supposed to be. So let's draw closer to God in prayer. Let's draw closer to God in, in the Word of God, and He will refine us, He will renew us in that process. Here's how God sees us. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Amen. Potentially, that's what we are. We are in the Spirit. When God looks at us, He looks at us from the lens of the Spirit, not from the lens of the flesh at all. Because it says here, uh, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And here is a big statement. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to you. Amen. That's a tough statement there. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit, does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if the spirit of God dwells in you, you are a child of God. Amen. So there is no such thing as a child of God who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Because it's the spirit that comes into you and even takes you and places you in the family of God. The Holy Spirit is God's seal of ownership. He places that in us so he sees, oh yeah, that's my kid. Amen. That's my boy. That's my girl. Because he sees the spirit. So you have the spirit of God in you. And by the way, you have all the spirit of God that you're ever going to have. Here's my question for you. is How much of you does the Spirit of God have? That's the real question. How much of you does the Spirit of God have? Because that's what's going to determine how you're going to live your life. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you belong to Him. If He doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to Him. God doesn't have His seal of ownership on you. And that's a problem. And because God dwells in you, because the Spirit of God is in you, he says clearly that although your body is dead because of sin, your fleshly desires, your spirit is alive 
because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Regents Church Podcast. To learn more about us, visit us online at www.regentschurch.org.